0: Section thirty five of Waverley, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Waverley, or or 'tis sixty years since.' Volume two, by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter seventy Dulci Domum. The impression of horror with which Waverley left Carlisle softened by degrees into melancholy a gradation which was accelerated by the painful yet soothing task of writing to rose and while he could not suppress his own feelings of the calamity he endeavored to place it in a light which might grieve her without shocking her imagination the picture which he drew for her benefit he gradually familiarized to his own mind and his next letters were more cheerful and referred to the prospects of peace and happiness which lay before them Yet, though his first horrible sensations had sunk into melancholy, Edward had reached his native country before he could, as usual on former occasions, look round for enjoyment upon the face of nature. He then, for the first time since leaving Edinburgh, began to experience what pleasure, which almost all feel who return to a verdant, populous and highly cultivated country, from scenes of waste, desolation, or of solitary and melancholy grandeur, but how were those feelings enhanced when he entered on the domain so long possessed by his forefathers recognized the old oaks of waverley chase thought with what delight he should introduce rose to all his favorite haunts beheld at length the towers of the venerable hall arise above the woods which embowered it and finally threw himself into the arms of the venerable relations to whom he owed so much duty and affection the happiness of their meeting was not tarnished by a single word of reproach. On the contrary, whatever pain Sir Everard and Mrs. Rachel had felt during Waverley's perilous engagement with the young Chevalier, it assorted too well with the principles in which they had been brought up to incur reprobation or even censure. Colonel Talbot also had smoothed the way with great address for Edward's favorable reception by dwelling upon his gallant behavior and the military character— particularly his bravery and generosity at Preston, until warmed at the idea of their nephews engaging in single combat, making prisoner, and saving from slaughter so distinguished an officer as the colonel himself, the imagination of the baronet and his sister ranked the exploits of Edward with those of Willibert, Hildebrand, and Nigel, the vaunted heroes of their line. The appearance of Waverley, embrowned by exercise and dignified by the habits of military discipline, had acquired an athletic and hardy character, which not only verified the colonel's narration, but surprised and delighted all the inhabitants of Waverley. Honour. They crowded to see, to hear him, and to sing his praises. Mr. Pembroke, who secretly extolled his spirit and courage in embracing the genuine cause of the Church of England, censured his pupil gently, nevertheless, for being so careless of his manuscripts, which indeed, he said, had occasioned him some personal inconvenience, as upon the baronets being arrested by a king's messenger, he had deemed it prudent to retire to a concealment called the priest's hold, from the use it had been put to in former days, where, he assured our hero, the butler had thought it safe to venture with food only once in the day, so that he had been repeatedly compelled to dine upon victuals, either absolutely cold, or, what was worse, only half warm, not to mention that sometimes his bed had not been arranged for two days together. Waverley's mind involuntarily turned to the Patmos of the Baron of Bradwardine, who was well pleased with Janet's fare, and a few bunches of straw stowed in a cleft in the front of a sand-cliff, but he made no remarks upon a contrast which could only mortify his worthy tutor. All was now in a bustle to prepare for the nuptials of Edward, an event to which the good old Baronet and Mrs. Rachel looked forward, as if to the renewal of their own youth. The match as colonel talbot had intimated had seemed to them in the highest degree eligible having every recommendation but wealth of which they themselves had more than enough mr clippers was therefore summoned to Waverley honor under better auspices than at the commencement of our story but mr clippers came not alone for being now stricken in years he had associated with him a nephew a younger vulture as our english juvenile who tells the tale of swallow the attorney might have called him and they now carried on business as messers, clippers, and hook'em. These worthy gentlemen had directions to make the necessary settlements on the most splendid scale of liberality, as if Edward were to wed the peeress in her own right, with her paternal estate tacked to the fringe of her ermine. But before entering upon a subject of proverbial delay, I must remind my reader of the progress of a stone rolled down hill by an idle trot-boy a pastime at which I was myself expert in my more juvenile years. It moves at first slowly, avoiding by inflection every obstacle of the least importance, but when it has attained its full impulse and draws near the conclusion of its career, it smokes and thunders down, taking a rood at every spring, clearing hedge and ditch like a Yorkshire huntsman, and becoming most furiously rapid in its course, when it is nearest to being consigned to rest for ever." even such is the course of a narrative like that which you are perusing. The earlier events are studiously dwelt upon, that you, kind reader, may be introduced to the character rather by narrative, than by the duller medium of direct description. But when the story draws near its close, we hurry over the circumstances, however important, which your imagination must have forestalled, and leave you to suppose those things which it would be abusing your patience to relate at length. We are, therefore, so far from attempting to trace the dull progress of Messrs. Clippers and Hookham, or that of their worthy official brethren, who had the charge of suing out the pardons of Edward Waverley and his intended father-in-law, that we can but touch upon matters more attractive. The mutual epistles, for example, which were exchanged between Sir Everard and the Baron upon this occasion, though matchless specimens of eloquence in their way, must be consigned to merciless oblivion. Nor can I tell you at length how worthy Aunt Rachel, not without a delicate and affectionate allusion to the circumstances which had transferred Rose's maternal diamonds to the hands of Donald Bain Lane, stocked her casket with a set of jewels that a duchess might have envied. Moreover, the reader will have the goodness to imagine that Job Hufton and his dame were suitably provided for, although they could never be persuaded that their son fell otherwise than fighting by the young squire's side, so that Alec, who, as a lover of truth, had made many needless attempts to expound the real circumstances to them, was finally ordered to say not a word more upon the subject. He indemnified himself, however, by the liberal allowance of desperate battles, grisly executions, and raw head and bloody bone stories with which he astonished the servants' hall. But although these important matters may be briefly told in narrative, like a newspaper report of a chancery suit, yet with all the urgency which Waverley could use, the real time which the law proceedings occupied, joined to the delay occasioned by the mode of travelling at that period, rendered it considerably more than two months ere Waverley, having left England, alighted once more at the mansion of the laird of Duchran to claim the hand of his plighted bride. The day of his marriage was fixed for the sixth after his arrival. The Baron of Bradberdeen, with whom bridles, christenings, and funerals were festivals of high and solemn import, felt a little hurt that, including the family of the Dukhan, and all the immediate vicinity who had title to be present on such an occasion, there could not be above thirty persons collected. When he was married, he observed, three hundred horse of gentlemen born, besides servants, and some score, or two, of Highland Lairds, who never got on horseback, were present on the occasion." But his pride found some consolation in reflecting that, he and his son-in-law, having been so lately in arms against government, it might give matter of reasonable fear and offence to the ruling powers, if they were to collect together the kith, kin, and allies of their houses, arrayed in a fear of war, as was the ancient custom of Scotland on these occasions. And without dubitation, he concluded with a sigh, many of those who would have rejoiced most freely upon these joyful espousals, are either gone to a better place, or are now exiles from their native land." The marriage took place on the appointed day. The Reverend Mr. Rubrick, kinsman to the proprietor of the hospitable mansion where it was solemnized, and chaplain to the Baron of Bradwardine, had the satisfaction to unite their hands, and Frank Stanley acted as bridesman, having joined Edward with that view soon after his arrival. Lady Emily and Colonel Talbot had proposed being present, but Lady Emily's health, when the day approached, was found inadequate to the journey. In amends it was arranged that Edward Waverley and his lady who with the Baron proposed an immediate journey to Waverley Honour should in their way spend a few days at an estate which Colonel Talbot had been tempted to purchase in Scotland as a very great bargain and at which he proposed to reside for some time End of chapter seventy